Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. The issue of meritocracy and its discontents won't go away on this show. A few months ago, we had the Yale law professor, Daniel Markovitz, critiquing it. A couple of weeks ago, we had my old friend David Goodhart, the ex, uh, the old Etonian who's written a book against uh, what he calls the the culture or the philosophy of the uh, of the head uh, uh, in favor of uh, the the heart and the hands. And today we have Michael Sandel, one of America's leading thinkers. Some people call him a, an academic or intellectual superstar, who has a new book. The Tyranny of Merit, What Becomes of the Common Good. Um, Michael, is there any irony or paradox to the fact that most of the leading critics of meritocracy come from within it? You are, of course, a graduate of uh, Pacific Palisades uh, High School, public high school in Los Angeles, and you have become uh, an academic superstar around the world. You fill stadiums now with your ideas. Why is the, the, the great critics of, of meritocracy tend to be products of the very meritocracy itself? Well, that's a good question. I don't know if I have a good answer to it, uh, Andrew, but I, I think it's hard to look at the state of our public life today and not be aware of the deepening divide between winners and losers, as the uh, so-called, and the polarization that this has brought about. And I think that a big part of that polarization has to do with changing attitudes towards success. It's partly the growing inequality of recent decades, but it's also the changing attitudes of, towards success, the, the tendency of those on top to believe that their success is their own doing. And by implication that those who struggle have no one to blame but themselves. It's this set of attitudes that uh, really were the starting point of, of the book. And that's how I came to the subject, as well as trying to make sense of the 2016 backlash against uh, meritocratic elites, governing elites, both with the, the vote in, in Britain on Brexit and the election of Trump. Yeah, we also had Thomas Frank on the show, um, who you mentioned uh, a couple of times in the book. Uh, another, yeah. another of uh, America's leading political thinkers who makes sense of this populism, this resentment against the, against the meritocracy. Um, one of the things I was struck with uh, in your in your brilliant book, Michael, was uh, how much criticism Barack Obama gets, both in political and cultural terms. Do you see him? as the epitome of a, an early 21st century meritocrat? I should say, even before I answer the question, Andrew, is I, I voted for Barack Obama twice, actually more than twice. I voted for him in the primaries uh, in 2008. And yet, you're right, I, I do give a kind of sympathetic but critical account of him 
in the book. I think he, uh, I think he imbibed uh, a meritocratic uh, ideals, a meritocratic picture of America, a faith in the idea that those who, uh, whatever their background, who get a first-class education at uh, preferably an, uh, an elite college or, or university, that they can rise and not only rise, but they are in a position to govern their fellow citizens. And I think this partakes of a general attitude that worries me in our society and that I describe in the book as meritocratic hubris. I, I think this is by no means uh, distinctive to or unique to Barack Obama, but I think he was very much in that tradition of the Democratic Party. In fact, it's a striking fact that with Joe Biden in the current campaign, he is the first, the first Democratic nominee in 36 years not to have graduated from an Ivy League university. And this should tell us something about the meritocratic turn of our public culture, and in particular of the Democratic Party. Michael, you've been teaching at, at Harvard uh, all your life. In fact, you, uh, I, I, I don't know if you know this, so you remember this, but you actually taught my ex-wife at Harvard Law School. Didn't her, do her much good, or me for that matter. Uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, what's gone wrong with our elite universities? Markowitz focuses on it, you too. You, you've spent your life in it. Something's gone really rotten with it, hasn't it? Really rotten wouldn't be the phrase I would use to describe it. Uh, my, um, the, I focus on the role that universities have come to play as arbiters of opportunity in a meritocratic society. And I worry about this. In many ways, assuming this role, this assignment, has been a great boon to universities and higher education. It's brought them tremendous uh, cultural centrality and prestige and economic importance. And yet, I think it may not be good for our society or even for the universities themselves. Should, should I, which one should I take first? Well, what intrigues me is the way, and, and I agree with your critique. I see it. I, I didn't go to Harvard, but I, as I said, I had an ex-wife who did, um, which is about as close as you can get to going to Harvard. I will anyway. No one, they would never let me in. Um, what is it about these universities that, that, that simultaneously they are these edifices of meritocracy, as you've put out, a, a sort of corrupted meritocracy where increasingly money and upper middle class culture gets you in. And at the same time, they're hotbeds of an increasingly intolerant morality. Is there a connection between these two things? I'm not sure that there is, but maybe you can persuade me about that, Andrew. I would say, uh, I would say a couple of things. First, uh, universities are, uh, proclaim themselves as meritocratic institutions. And, uh, and yet, even those with generous financial aid policies, 
generous scholarships to fund the education of those who come from poor families, those who can't afford it. Even still, if one looks at the Ivy League universities in America, there are more students from the top 1% than there are from the entire bottom half of the country combined. What this shows is that we don't fully live up to the meritocratic ideals we profess. But there's a further problem, which is the, the, the competition for admission to top colleges and universities in the US is intense, so intense that we saw just last year, this scandal you remember this, the uh, who, 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 who could forget that scandal, Michael? It's, it's memorable and, and very amusing and troubling at the same time, of course. It, it's troubling because here were affluent parents and celebrities who were engaging in a fraudulent scheme to gain entrance for their children to uh, top universities. Now, this was universally condemned on the left and the right. Everyone agreed how, at how outrageous this was. To me, and I begin the book telling the story of this scandal, to me what's most revealing about it is not the lengths to which parents will go to, to get, give their kids an, an edge in life, even if a fraudulent one, but why is it that the admission to top colleges and universities has become such an object of such fevered striving and ambition uh, almost to the point of obsession among a certain class of affluent parents, that it would issue in the extreme in this kind of scandal. And that's what I think we should reconsider. Do we want universities to play such a role in dispensing the credentials and defining the merit that the rest of the economy will reward and that the rest of the society and the public culture will valorize and honor. And here I think is where we've gone wrong. We easily forget, Andrew, that, that most Americans don't have a four-year college degree. Two, nearly two-thirds don't, of any kind, a four-year college degree. So it's folly to create an economy that sets as a necessary condition of dignified work and a decent life that one has a four-year university degree, much less from a brand name university. So we should, we, we should shift, I think, the whole point of emphasis away from arming young people for meritocratic competition toward asking how can we make life better for everyone, but including the majority of workers who contribute in important ways to the common good without having or in many cases, without needing a four-year university degree. I don't think anyone would argue about much of this with, with, with you, um, Michael. Um, what I was surprised with in the book, perhaps I wouldn't say it's missing, but I've been intrigued with your take on it, is, is more of a commentary on high school. Because uh -huh. It seems to me that by the university, by the time of university, the die is already cast. As I suggested at the beginning, I did a little bit of digging about you. You, you graduated in 1971 from Pacific Palisades High School in Los Angeles. Presumably, it's a public high school. You weren't from a privileged background, but it was a remarkable school. Uh, 
I, uh, uh, JJ Abrams, Steve Kerr, Dan Loeb, lots of remarkable graduates, presumably from relatively middle-class backgrounds. But you also note in the book that even in high school, that cult of achievement began separating high achievers like yourself and, and the rest of the school. Shouldn't we begin with trying to reform high school or even K through 12 rather than the university? Well, I certainly think that we should reform uh, K through 12, um, primary and secondary education, and to address the deep inequalities in funding that make for vastly different experiences. You mentioned, Andrew, my having gone to uh, Palisades High School, uh, this was in West Los Angeles. Uh, in fact, one could see the Pacific Ocean from the front quad of the school. It was a public high school, and yet it was in an affluent area. So um, it, it drew people from middle class and especially upper middle class families, even though it was a public high school. And it was heavily tracked, and I tell a few stories in the book about the experience of my early brush with meritocratic assumptions that I wasn't fully even aware of through the intense tracking of uh, the various academic tracks in this public high school, even to the point, uh, if I can mention this one anecdote, where in a math class, when I think I, it was in the eighth grade, I think, after each quiz or exam, before handing it back, the teacher would rearrange the seating chart because the first three rows, uh, in the first three rows, students were seated in precise order of their grade point average as of that moment. So the meritocratic pressures that have by now intensified, and I see how, how my own students bear the mark of these pressures, they had begun back then, and this was my first brush with them, but the overriding uh, um, need, I think, to go to, to back to your question, is to try to remedy the vast inequality of resources that are uh, the result of the local funding of public education. Have you ever wondered uh, about your own life, if, if you'd been quote unquote a failure, if you hadn't got that Rhodes Scholarship and then uh, studied with Charles Taylor at Oxford and become this superstar academic at, at Harvard? Do you think you might have been happier? Well, I can't claim that much, much as I would like to, um, to raise criticisms about meritocracy, I can't claim that mine is an unhappy life. That, that, wouldn't, be, <laughs> that wouldn't be true to, to, to my, the, the way I feel about it. But I certainly think that there are a great many life trajectories uh, that can be deeply satisfying without requiring a society devoted to mm. equipping people to scramble up uh, a ladder, a competitive ladder of success. And I think that scramble, the striving, the pressure, the anxiety, and also the ex sense of exclusion that, that it produces um, has, has pulled us away from the common good and has has really interfered with our ability to ask uh, what we owe one another as citizens. 
mm. and how we can come to care for the common good. So I think meritocracy, as we currently practice it, is, is corrosive of the common good. And that's really, as you know, Andrew, the central theme of the book. Yeah, it's a wonderful book, as I said, my, uh, Michael. And it, and it seems in some ways to to be an encompassing of, of, of much of your earlier work. You have made your name over the years as a political philosopher. Uh, many people call you a communitarian. I know you're not entirely comfortable with that term. But it seems as if you are presenting, shall we say, a, a, a political philosophy of civic virtue or of communitarianism as an alternative to this utilitarian meritocracy that has developed over the last 150 years. Is that fair? Yes, that's a pretty good gloss on it. The way I would describe it would be as follows, Andrew. What's, what's happened in recent decades is that those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit. And that by implication, those who have fallen short, those who struggle, must have no one to blame but themselves. And this leads to a kind of meritocratic hubris among the winners and a demoralizing sense, even a sense of humiliation on those who've been left behind. And I think these attitudes towards success and failure are deeply at odds with uh, a sense of solidarity or a commitment to the common good. And so I'm trying to ask first to identify this tendency in our public life and our public discourse um, and in the shape of our economy, but also to ask, what, how, how might it be better? What would be an alternative to meritocratic competition focusing on individual upward mobility through higher education rather than taking a dealing with inequality head on and seeking after a politics of the common good? There is, of course, this alternative tradition of the common good. Uh, last month, we had David Runciman, who I'm sure you know, the professor of politics at Cambridge on the show, has just started a wonderful podcast about the history of political thought. And we talked about the Arendtian tradition of ordering citizenship and value and placing the political um, at the, within the hierarchy as the most important as, a facet of of, 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 of what it means to be human. Uh, is Arendt, or is it Aristotle? I mean, where do you position yourself within the tradition of, as of reminding people of the value of the common good as an alternative to this meritocratic utilitarianism? Where do you look most of all for inspiration? I'm deeply influenced by Aristotle's account of the polis and of civic virtue, his insistence that Politics is not, political association is not only for the sake of exchanging goods and providing for the mutual defense. It's also for the sake of cultivating a shared common life where citizens can deliberate uh, with their fellow citizens about the meaning of justice and the common good. That's even acknowledging that Aristotle did not admit to the circle of citizenship everyone. He didn't include women, he didn't include slaves, but the ideal of civic deliberation about the common good is an, is an important alternative to our almost single-minded focus 
on politics as being about consumption, about maximizing consumer welfare, the utilitarian idea you mentioned. Hannah Arendt, uh, whom you also touched on, was a very uh, important uh, influence on me. Uh, she, uh, she too talks about the importance of public life appearing in the public and um, she uh, and also the importance of action and human agency which she thinks requires a certain kind of public life as its precondition we can't exercise our freedom fully as individuals but only as citizens who have a, a say in shaping the forces that govern our collective lives so they certainly are among uh, among the influential sources of the political philosophy I've drawn upon in working out this critique, well, my earlier critique of a um, um, market society that puts everything up for sale. And then in this book, The Tyranny of Merit, the critique of a society defined by meritocratic competition. And, and it's not merit in an elevated sense of true contribution to the common good, what we tend to do is assume that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. This is a mistake. Drawing on the thing you mentioned can help us see why. Uh, Michael, uh, I just made a movie called How to Fix Democracy, and one of the sections in the movie is about citizen assemblies. And when you brought up uh, Aristotle, it reminded me of the way in which contemporary citizen assemblies are, so to speak, resurrecting that uh, Aristotelian sense of the, the polis through the lottery to give people political power, which doesn't necessarily reflect anything about their economic background and, and reintroduces the idea of the lottery or even luck into politics. And it seems to be quite successful in Ireland and in Belgium and in Spain, and it's even being talked about now in the United States. Is this the kind of experiment that you would be looking for in contemporary American democracy to resurrect citizenship through citizen assemblies? I'd like to learn mo more about it, Andrew, and I should see your film. But I do want to introduce a greater um, awareness of luck and fortune into our public culture. Because I think the tendency to believe that our success is our own doing is flawed not least because it forgets the luck and good fortune that help us on our way. More than this, being aware of the role of luck in life can prompt a certain humility it can prompt us to say, to look upon those less fortunate than ourselves and say, there, but for the accident of fate or the grace of God or the luck of the draw, go I. And this thought, this humility, can be, the, can be an opening, the beginning of a way back from the harsh ethic of success and competitive merit that drives us apart toward a politics of the common good, toward a greater degree of, of concern for the fate of those less fortunate than ourselves. Uh, finally, Michael, uh, I was telling a friend I was 
going to interview you and they got all excited and uh, they, 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 they're a great admirer of your work, but they don't agree with you. They said, oh, that guy just wants to replace meritocracy with moralocracy. How would you respond to that? Some people would say, well, what, why do we need morality? Where, where, where's the, I know it's a, it's, it's a big question, but perhaps you can confront this very simply. T t tell these people why a moralocracy, firstly, maybe perhaps you're not a, a moralocrat, but secondly, why a moralocracy might be more valuable than a meritocracy. I, I have a hunch what your friend may have meant by moralocracy, although it's, uh, I could be wrong and that's not what I would, that's not the banner under which I would march. I would put it this way. It's sometimes assumed that the alternative to a meritocracy where people rise based on their efforts and talents is an aristocracy where people's place in life is given it by the accident of birth. But I think those are not the only two alternatives. I certainly hope not. For me, the alternative to meritocracy is democracy, properly understood. Now, by democracy, I don't just mean a place where people can go to the polls on election day or mail in their ballot and vote. By democracy, I mean something broader in the, in the way we organize our civic life and civil society. I mean a broad democratic equality of condition in which we don't just assume that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good, but we deliberate about what counts as a valuable contribution to the common good and about how to align rewards, material rewards, and social recognition and esteem with who truly contributes to the common good. This may be very different from the verdict of the market. Now, here's maybe why your friend thought moralocracy was, the, was my preferred alternative. We can't even have a debate about what counts as a valuable contribution to the common good unless we can have a, unless we can also debate what purposes and ends are worthy of us as a political community. The mistake we've made in recent decades, Andrew, I think has been to outsource our judgment, our moral judgment to markets. Just assuming that the market's verdict can tell us who has contributed most, who is worthy of reward and honor and recognition and esteem. But I think that market verdict is misleading in many ways. And so I think we should reclaim that judgment. And that does mean bringing moral argument more directly to bear on political discourse and political argument. So to that I plead guilty. I do think we need a morally more robust kind of public discourse than the kind to which we've become accustomed. What passes for a public discourse these days consists of narrow managerial technocratic talk, which inspires no one, or when passion enters, we have shouting matches where people shout past one another without really listening. I think that what citizens hunger for 
is a morally more engaged public discourse where we debate big questions that matter, including questions of values, including questions about what makes for a just society, who deserves what and why, what do we owe one another as citizens? These are large moral questions. I say they are unavoidable in a truly democratic society. And to that extent, I plead guilty to wanting to bring morality to bear on democratic public life, Andrew. Well, if you want moral robustness, uh, you won't find it anywhere more condensed and intelligent and, and, and provocative than, than Michael Sandel's new book, The Tyranny of Merit, What Becomes of the Common Good. Everyone needs to read it, Michael. I'm sure, as always with your books, it will be a bestseller. Uh, finally, in addition to your book, you're in your uh, library in Brookline, Massachusetts. I'm stuck in Berkeley, California. What else should people be reading in these strange times to make sense of our world, our surreal world in uh, September, late September 2020? Well, as I, I would, um, I guess I would say two things. I, I would, if I'm allowed to name a film and a book. You're allowed to do whatever you like, Michael, on my show. Well, the film, uh, my wife, son, and I just rewatched uh, the film I Am Not Your Negro about James Baldwin. Ah, yes. It, it is really a very powerful film, not least because. He's such a magnificent writer and trenchant social critic. So I would rec recommend the film. And I, and I think that that's actually free on Netflix or Amazon, so you wouldn't even have to pay for it. Okay, yeah. And then that might also, I mean, one uh, would do very well to read some of the writings of James Baldwin, which uh, found, found their way, some of which found their way into the film. The other the, the book, very small book, uh, forgotten by many, uh, is one that I drew upon in thinking about the tyranny of merit, my recent book. And that's a short book by the man who coined the term meritocracy, Michael Young, a British sociologist affi affiliated with the Labour Party. He wrote uh, the book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, in 1958. It was the first uh, widespread use of the term meritocracy. And what's intriguing, looking back at that book, uh, and was that he introduced the term, Michael Young did, not as a term of praise, not as an ideal or an aspiration, but as a dystopia. And the dystopia he glimpsed was that if there were ever a day when social positions and economic status were determined based on effort and talent perfectly, never mind falling short, but if it were, if it were ever uh, realized uh, perfectly, that the winners would be insufferably smug, believing it was all their own doing, that they would look down on those who didn't flourish, believing it was they had themselves to blame. And Michael Young thought those who struggled at the bottom would be plagued by the demoralizing thought that they simply lacked the effort and talent to get ahead. And he predicted 
that if the meritocracy unfolded in this way, but that by the year 2034, remember he's writing back in the late 50s, there would be a populist revolt against meritocratic elites. Michael Young was onto something, except that revolt came in 2016, about 18 years ahead of schedule. So that's worth taking a, a look back at Michael Young's rise of the meritocracy. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.